Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about design research and voting. On today's episode, I have a fascinating conversation with Alicia Cheng about her great new book, This Is What Democracy Looked Like, A Visual History of the Printed Ballot. This book is a richly illustrated look at how printed ballots in the United States has evolved over this country's history. But this is not just a book that's about typography or illustration or paper stocks. What Alicia does so well here is use these artifacts, use these designed objects to tell a larger story, a story about democracy, but also a story about how this country has had an uneasy relationship with voting and how we've made it easier in some ways while also making it harder in other ways. This book, fortunately and unfortunately, is perfectly timed as we head to the polls when the president of the United States is already trying to delegitimize the election, to stop people from voting, to make voting harder for people, to try to sabotage the post office so you can't mail in your ballot. But what Alicia shows in this book, and I hope comes across in this conversation, is the importance of voting and how throughout this country's history we have seen things like this before and why that's important to make it easier for as many people to vote as possible. And that, in some ways, is a design problem. So if you haven't voted yet, do it. Find out if you can vote early in your state and go. Find out where your polling place is. If you'll be voting next week, do it early if you can. And most importantly, do it safely. Alicia and I begin this conversation talking about the book and talking about what she learned through the process, both about design history, but also American history. Alicia is a graphic designer by trade. She's the founding partner of a New York design studio management, which is stylized MGMT, which you hear me uh, accidentally refer to it like that in the conversation a few times. And we talk about approaching this book from a designer's perspective, as opposed to a historian or a researcher's perspective, and how this project intersected with the studio's work and the role of research in her larger practice. Remember, Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you. If you enjoy this show and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that is written by me that includes bonus content, exclusive interviews, uh, as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. If you like Scratching the Surface, if you want to see it continue, please consider becoming a supporting member. It truly means so much to me, and it really helps keep the podcast going. For all the details and to sign up, all you have to do is go to scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. That's scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. Thank you, as always, for your support and for listening, and enjoy this really thoughtful conversation with Alicia Cheng. start with the origins of this project and where this project came from because it seems like a really massive undertaking so you have this um this semi-new book now at this point this is what democracy looked like a visual history of the printed ballot and in this book you kind of go through you know really almost the entire history of the united states and look at the evolution of ballot design where how'd this start where did this idea come from for you um, I will fully credit um, the eminent historian Jill Lepore, who wrote mm. a piece in The New Yorker, it was October uh, 08, and she wrote about sort of like early voting practices um, 
you know, where it was not a private process and voters risked, you know, their lives to show up at the polls and that they were holding colorful ballots. And the whole article was super fascinating to me, uh, just learning things I never knew about sort of the history of how our participatory democracy worked in the early days. But the colorful ballot thing really struck my eye. I was like, what is possible? So, you know, the internet then did not really have too much to offer in terms of uh, visual examples. There was maybe a few things. And then one thing led to another. I was feeling, I don't know, I just reached out to her and she happened to be in New York and we had mm. coffee together, which was amazing. Uh, <laughs> she was already back then pretty busy. Um, yeah. She encouraged me to pursue it um, as an endeavor, uh, unfortunately not able to write for it per se. But, you know, just said there were some private collectors or different libraries that I should just sort of, uh, you know, see what I could find. And so it was like one of those big ticket projects that you put on a back burner, like, whenever I have free time from work, I'll do this. And of course, it didn't really pursue to uh, proceed very far. And then life happened. But in 2016, I was really kind of reeling after the election results and was, you know, resolved to sort of seek refuge in history to see if our republic had survived something mm. like this, because <laughs> we have had, if not worse, something close to it. So that started um, just like simple research at New York Public Library, just sitting in the Rose uh, reading room, which is an incredibly inspiring space, um, and just sort of checking out books in and around sort of ballot design and history of, you know, it was mm -hmm. super general and like really idle. I wasn't aiming for a book. I wasn't aiming to encapsulate the whole like visual history um, at that moment. But, you know, it built on itself where I was found myself in LA and there is a huge collection at the Huntington Museum, which I highly mm. recommend going mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. in Pasadena. I, I have, I'm familiar with it, um, but I have not actually been there yet. It's like has been. It's like a botanical <laughs> garden. It's a museum. Right. It's an historic house and it's a library. And so um, I went there and, you know, applied for reading privileges. It was pretty straightforward and, you know, found myself being given these sort of boxes of political ephemera. And it was so viscerally so exciting to just pour through all of this paper ephemera from like late 1700s, 1800s, you know, no, mm -hmm. no reason, you know, it was just available to me. And it was um, super exciting. And that really galvanized the effort to sort of capture this and share it, you know, to the world. And whether or not it was going to be a book or a website or an exhibition, all of those things that, you know, as a designer, I was familiar with how one gets the content to that state, which was not an easy task. Um, I had no uh, illusions that I would hit a 2020 anything mark, really. <laughs> um, so I was sort of traveling along, like doing research in different places. Another big uh, source was the uh, American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Mass., which were super mm -hmm. helpful. So all of these visits were just the most exciting kind of things where I just didn't really know what I was asking for, but just sort of looking to see what they had under the heading of ballots, 18th century, 19th century. So that part was just super exciting and to sort of feel the and see the physical artifact in hand is something I always talk about, especially to like students to say that, right. you know, you can see it online and it's many of them now have been digitized, but there's something totally different about holding it in your hand, feeling the texture of the paper and the tactility, um, you know, and seeing like pencil marks of somebody from, you know, 1889. So that part is really kind of almost chilling. Um, 
And then, you know, one thing led to another and somebody's like, you know, you should really get out there and do something with this. So <laughs> yeah. I emailed um, our friend Nicholas Blackman at New Yorker saying, mm. do you have any ideas about where this could, um, you know, be shown? And he said, oh, maybe we would do something about it. I was like, we? <laughs> he went to New Yorker. So that was really exciting and uh, completely freaked me out. So we got, he posted an online piece uh, for midterms. Um, hmm. I think that was in, this is where I don't know the year. I'll have to look that up, but midterms in November and that kind of put mm-hmm. it out there. So then I was felt more emboldened to like go to Princeton architecture press who we had a relationship with to be like, what do you think about this idea? And right. that's what really lit the fire of like, you know what, I think we can do this for 2020. And then it was just bonkers. Like, you know, yeah. as you know, as an author also yeah. sort of like, yeah you know cramming a sort of i felt like a history masters um self-taught to sort of write at least some uh, framing essays sort of look for contributors to help frame it further and then you know try to get the content in a way that uh, was suitable for reproduction so all of that happened really fast <laughs> i'm not sorry we did it because i feel like at this moment too in so many ways it's uh, become something that everyone is really focused on so yeah you know i mean it's good timing in a way but i think it's just such a everyone is primed to receive this in a really great way yeah and i want to come back i want to come back to that kind of idea about this being an important book for this time but i have one other question you said something else in there that i thought was interesting that i want to ask you first about that kind of um you know publishing it in the new yorker and then that kind of cram to get it out and obviously at management you you are a very kind of research focused studio i think but had you ever done this uh broad and deep of research before or like you know do you consider yourself a historian what was that no i mean i think that very clear because you know you're wading into what is clearly not like a quote-unquote design field right you're like learning about american history and you know i took civics in high school like i kind of knew the general outlay but then suddenly you're really going deep and sort of like you know, the electoral process back then, the effect of right. sort of like, a, you know, voter emancipation, universal suffrage, like you're getting into it in a great way. But I would mm-hmm. never, I never thought that I would go deep in that way. I mean, before I was a designer, I was more of like an English major, more academically minded. Mm-hmm. But I had never okay. done anything, um, you know, this specific in terms of uh, historical research in that way. I mean, what yeah. I think was freeing for me from an our curatorial standpoint was that I wasn't really looking for the ballot that represented, you know, the election of, you know, um, Rutherford B. Hayes in 18... 18- so right. they, I was just looking for kind of cool stuff. And like <laughs> design eyeballs, you're like, this is awesome. I don't really, you know, it's less about representing, you know, California and Midwest and the East Coast. Right. So that was freeing in that way from a curatorial standpoint. Um, but I did love the research and the academic quality of it and sort of all the writing and, you know, footnotes and all that. Like, it takes time. Like, you know, yeah. I'm no Robert Caro, but I can totally appreciate it. <laughs> it will take years. So maybe it's a blessing, obviously, to sort of really light the fire and get it done quickly. But, you know, in better circumstances, I would have loved to sort of like, you know, revel in just being able to kind of luxuriate in a topic and just learn things. So that was like one of the best um byproducts of the process. Sure. I mean, it's interesting, you know, you talk about the writing, the captions and the image descriptions and, and what was kind of fun for me in the book 
and in, in reading it, and I read all of the captions. I think I read every word in the book. Yeah, nice. uh, <laughs> uh, and we know each other a little bit, but not that not that well. But every time every time I've kind of been with you and we've talked, you kind of radiate this energy and mm-hmm. sense of humor. Uh, and that all came through in the book too. Was okay. that a kind of conscious choice? Like the captions had jokes in them, uh, and there were like little. Uh, kind of subtle humor throughout. Was that a was that kind of a conscious decision, or is that just like that's who you are, that's how you write, and that's just you know well, what happened? Funny. Thanks for for um, commenting on that for sure. And you know when you have to like write something to that's more sort of conversational versus say that first sort of assignment as being for the New Yorker, suddenly you get very you know again academic in a not a great way. It becomes a little bit right. tilted and stiff. And here are the facts. And then I just kind of. I was doing a lot of reading of different historians that whose voices I really liked, like like Jill Lepore, you know, Robert mm. Carl writing about process. I became really interested in reading about historians writing about history and the mm-hmm. that they take because it is so speculative. So, you know, I didn't want to sort of write things in such a definitive way because I was so self-conscious about not being a historian. So right. in a way, like default, not defaulting, but sort of introducing a more, I wouldn't say casual per se, but a voice that was like, you know, not meant to be like, and this happened. Because, right. You know, no one really knows. And it's still much more compelling and it's a greater story if you sort of, you know, introduce it more colorfully and not so uh, pedantically. So, um, yeah. So that part was fun. But writing is hard. <laughs> it's really yeah, hard. Yeah. You don't have to tell me that. <laughs> no, 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 you know full well. So, you know, that's what I mean about the time it takes. Like you just massage and massage like one paragraph. You know, especially when you are trying to leapfrog from fact to fact, um, it's it's hard. So that was another also great exercise where it wasn't just about the ballot. It became about, you know, the electoral process in general, the growing population, the immigration stances, the sort of, you know, um, the the rise of the um, restoration period and like all of that directly affected what ballots looked like. So I was tying in sort of the broader stroke American history movements with a lot of the stuff I was seeing. And like, you know, you read history and sort of see recurrent names of, you know, not you know, presidential candidates, but sort of gubernatorial candidates. And, you know, I was starting to see coming together within the artifact that that was super exciting. Um, another huge tie-in, which was really thrilling, was, you know, a look at how they were produced, you know, paper production, changing right. from, you know, um, linen to wood fundamentally changed the distribution methods and people being able to have a little more free time rather than just to stay alive and like all these things uh you know it was just like this massive multi-layers kind of venn diagram and the very middle was the ballot so that it was um hugely stimulating and excited and exciting but also like really overwhelming to try to sort of refer to that um within the, the, the text that i did have so well that's that's something i wanted to ask you about because you mentioned earlier that you kind of treating this as a design project or thinking about this as, uh, you know, the, the kind of history of the visuals of these. And you have that and they're interesting and they're they're fun to look at. And some of them are, are silly and some of them are very uh, kind of serious. And you can see how they uh, relate or have led to what ballots look like today. But what was really interesting to me was this larger story that you kind of embed 
either, I, I guess, beneath <laughs> those visuals. Mm -hmm. And my favorite type of design history book is the design history book that looks at these artifacts and says, all right, what can these artifacts tell us about that time or mm -hmm. tell us about some kind of broader yes. thing? And that's what you're doing here. And what was really interesting to me is <laughs> it's, it's, you know, we're kind of in this moment right now where we're voting, we're talking about the importance of voting. There's everything going on with like the post office and, mm -hmm. and ma mail-in voting and, and the how hard voting can be and is for people. And what's interesting is that's kind of embedded in <laughs> the, this book throughout the entire history is yeah making voting hard. And I'm thinking specifically of that one ballot that was like 14 feet long or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you talk about how you started to tell that story in relationship to the actual physical ballots and how those ballots then kind of show this really uneasy relationship between kind of government and voting? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the main things that I discovered just through sort of broadly reading about you know, the rise say, of Andrew Jackson and sort of common mm -hmm. man and like how offices became more elected versus appointed. All of that meant more elections, meant more people voting and more, you know, ballots needed. So mm -hmm. in a way, all, ballots always being a reflection of how that electoral evolution has and the sort of pathology of democracy has evolved. Um, I mean, it's kind of cold comfort to say like we're so outraged at the sort of level of corruption and outright sort of, um, you know, um, bad behavior of our current administration, but I don't know what to say, but it's, it was worse before, <laughs> you know, like, it, you know, if you I mean, yeah. all are more familiar potentially with like the whole boss tweed, uh, oh, yeah. corruption from like Kings of New York or whatever. But even before that, the whole nature of how one casts one ballot is sort of founded on, you know, once things uh, really become, you know, it's all rests in the power of the political parties, which is hard to kind of understand that if you imagine that all your ballots are produced by a Republican or Democratic Party, yeah, um, it yeah. seems like sort of blatantly uh, partisan. But um, that's another sort of broader history that gets embedded with this sort of uh, context is sort of the history of political parties and partisanship. So mm -hmm. that's why I had to keep broadening it out, broadening it out without getting lost in that narrative and still keeping it focused on the ballot. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to say the issues of like power and um, corruption are, you know, consistent themes throughout our history. I mean, there are some yeah. things that I didn't include that they were like off topic from the ballot, but like, you know, newspaper accounts of like drunken senators casting votes on the <laughs> You know, I mean, the nice. used to occur when they used to bring, you know, firearms to the Senate floor. Like, right. you're like, you know what? There is progress. I guess my question or I guess kind of the, the what I'm really curious about in the kind of structure and organization of the book is how you how you thought about making sure that it always came back to the ballot itself. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that you, you know, you are a graphic designer. This, we can say, is a kind of book of design history or of kind of like visual you know visual history um it's very richly illustrated how how did you how did you think about the best way to tell this larger narrative without losing focus of but this is actually about these objects also you know what i mean yes i do and i would say my short answer is a very good editor 
<laughs> Abby Boosel and uh, Sarah Simmons at Pittsburgh Press. They were so supportive and awesome. And my first draft was just like, it was, you know, huge and fatty and had everything. I mean, I could, you know, because each one of these were really, I didn't see them as tangents per se, but like there was a whole huge chapter on like ballot boxes and what I found about that or, you know, voting machines. And, you know, they kept saying, keep it to the ballot, keep it to the ballot, because there were so many like amazing stories that I felt, you know, were not irrelevant, but less, less relevant. So I think keeping it on track was, um, you know, I could credit my editors at PAP. I can credit my husband and other readers who were um, gently trying to help me focus on the ballot because it was just all, you know, it all seemed uh, relevant. So I think that's also funny because, you know, as a designer of exhibitions, sometimes you work with collectors um, and, you know, when you're trying to get them to say narrow down their checklist and they're trying to be like, oh, but they all matter. And you're like, ugh, they all look the same. It was the same for me because I also had to edit down the number of ballots that I could fit in the page count. And I turned into one of those people that's like, oh no, but I really love this one. (laughs) So um, yeah, so uh, I saw both sides of of, uh, the coin in terms of content generation and uh, design. I'm not sure if there's a question here. I'm going to just talk a little bit and see <laughs> see if something comes out. Because there's something that I'm thinking about and kind of hearing you talk about the process is I'm thinking about kind of my own history with voting and ballots and thinking about this. And my kind of first paying attention to the design of ballots, which I th- probably think, unfortunately, a lot of people's was the butterfly ballot in 2000. Um, and and that is like a you know the prime case of design gone wrong mm-hmm. and i already mentioned the like 14 foot ballot mm-hmm. which was my favorite uh favorite thing in your book mm-hmm. and i'm i'm interested in in your research did you find other things like that where the design itself was either intentionally or unintentionally um you know like backfired i guess so like like i guess what i'm trying to say is like the butterfly ballot was just kind of poorly designed you know a bad user interface the the 14 foot ballot is also a bad user interface but probably on purpose to make it so people couldn't Mm -hmm. uh, vote or it'd be hard to vote um how i mean like how common is that is that more pervasive than we realize are there other examples of that 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 you were able to find there are other examples but it's also interesting to note that that where you know there aren't the examples that i found in my research aren't always fully embodied in the ballot itself like the 14th Mm. great statement in and of itself but that's why going back to the digression part like you know deliberate voter suppression happened in the form of you know, ballots that were really hard to read for people who were less literate, or they, you had to submit them, you know, not in one ballot box, but several. So they would have one box for every office and they would switch the order every now and then to confuse, like every step of the way was, you know, sort of laid with different kind of um, opportunities for corruption, you know, like setting a voter registration date on a Jewish holiday when people, you know, couldn't, had to observe the Sabbath. So subtle but consistent ways where there are a lot of um you know suppressive corrupt practices that aren't always embodied in the ballot as an artifact but are Mm. fully embodied in the electoral process as a whole 
right. I know. Right. Right. It's totally depressing because you can be like, a better ballot, then everyone can vote. It's like, well, yes, but, you know, now everyone's learning. Like, it has to, it depends on the mail system. And also, let's talk about the printers who are trying to print right. things and the envelopes and supply and demand and all those things that we all know about from a design and production standpoint. Those all matter, too. I mean, you started answering what exactly what my next question was, was going to be. And I was curious about how this research, if it changed how you think about the voting process and maybe even ballot design specifically today. And you, you already said <laughs> you, you, you are kind of heartened by the outrage uh, that's happening right now and, and kind of saying like, you know what, it was also worse before. Yeah. Um, there's obviously... Um, you know, questions about um, uh, uh, like digital ballots and the security there. And, and you mm-hmm. kind of mentioned in the book that paper ballots are kind of, you know, perhaps here to stay for a while. Mm-hmm. What uh, what do you think about right now? Um, how does this connect to that history? Is there a, you know, I, I'm not telling you to to speculate or to to be a futurist, but, you know, is there a way forward here, even from from a kind of visual design standpoint? I think not so much the way forward for me. I think the research for me has has certainly taught me to appreciate and be more sympathetic to the enormous challenges that we face. Not and it's not again about the layout of the ballot, which you know right. is a factor for sure. But just sort of the scale in which our democracy is sort of sick as it is now, but as it functions uh, with the number of people and, and managing a population of our scale. It's amazing. It functions at all. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> right. come from a, from a, a perspective of like, you know, reading closely about ma- managing all the influx of all the immigrants coming at a certain, you know, period. You know, the endemic racism that happens then too. So, in many ways, we are, you know, functioning at a higher level than we deserve to be potentially. Um, mm-hmm. So, I think ultimately, it's more sympathetic to the enormous challenges facing us today. Um, and I think just. You know, from my standpoint, having done a few events with like the Brennan Center, who's actively involved in sort of uh, voter legislation and sort of um, helping improve sort of um, election administration aspects like that, I feel is a place where, you know, hoping that there can be more funding and more um, awareness of getting better people who are managing that system, too. Like, you know, it's not so sexy to be a poll worker. Um, Right. Maybe we should privilege that more. So these are clearly, you know, broad systemic uh, changes that would be good to see. And on a like right. play level, you know, I, I signed up to be a um, election inspector, you know, it's not, mm. and mm-hmm. I'm kind of frankly a little bit tired of like making posters. I know that's something we can do, but you know, I feel like I don't know how else to sort of actively get your hands dirty in that way, which feels like we need hands on deck to do that no matter what your background. Right. I also um, give a website to folks. Uh, it's called 866ourvote.org. You can go and get training and then be sort of more of a hotline for voters to ask questions about, you know, where they can get their ballot or sort of a general sort of information hotline. So that kind of thing. I mean, you know, in a non-pandemic time, I would definitely consider like driving to Ohio or Pennsylvania or working on banks. Or that's the kind of thing that I think we can't, we can't think that that's... Um, we need to see that as a really viable option this time because uh, it's a critical moment. Yeah. And it's like, it's interesting. And I was trying, I was trying to, this is like starting to get to the question that I was kind of trying to phrase earlier where 
these these issues it's easy to frame them as design yeah. <laughs> issues. It's like, oh, if we just had a better ballot design, that would do it. But that that's not true. It might it's, you know, that might be like a little step, but that's not actually really the the big problem here. No, that's exactly right. And I, I get a little miffed at my own tribe by sort of thinking that maybe that would be, you know, such a key component. And it's obviously a key component within many key components. So yeah, I'll say right. it is a matter of design, but it's more with like a capital D, like a design of the whole kind of system. So let's not right. be too enamored of like what typeface looks best. Clearly, that's a factor when you have things like the butterfly. And then there's many horrifying examples, coincidentally, all for Florida. Um, you know, <laughs> screen issues of like, you know, putting the instructions on, you know, within the column. So, you know, just people just misvoting because they're just like poor layout. So, you know, that to me uh, is a simple thing of you're making a county clerk be the art director. Like that's right. So not to, and that when that's when I would say, yes, a designer should be part of that process. It doesn't have to be like, you know, the savior, but it can certainly help a lot in terms of we're totally used to designing under specific parameters and, you know, keeping things, you know, all those specifications. So I think yeah. trying to incorporate a design, um, you know, link in that chain, I think would be a key um, improvement, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And I was thinking about, I, I think a lot about kind of the design history canon and what, when, when we teach students design history, what we show them. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in not just showing them, this is a little bit of a tangent, by the way, <laughs> you know, not just showing them like the, you know, the, the posters from the mid-century modernists and showing them, you know, kind of postmodernist postmodernism in the nineties and stuff, but like actually showing this ephemera also. And, and that like, Hey, this is a design thing too. And that's an option to think about, you know, in your future also. And I don't know. I don't know if I have anything to say other than to, that I agree with you that that is a part of it and that that is helpful, but also kind of keeping in mind that that's not the end. Yeah, it's a sort of, of it. we did a project, my studio, we did a project with the AHDA for a design relief after Hurricane Sandy. And, you know, it was a really engaging, eye-opening process where we were working directly with communities to sort of see what they needed. That was as, as the brief was that broad. So going to a lot of community meetings and listening to what they needed, it was ended up being sort of more of a communication system whereby they could go to this place called the Red Hook Hub and, you know, know that that would be verified information and also opportunities for a community to post information. So the, the graphic design of that whole project in the end was like trade gothic on 100% yellow. That was <laughs> with like no time to do it. Um, yeah. But, you know, the process was... The design process too so it is about you know you can call it ux ui but sort of the audience what they need from it and the context within which it lives is so key to not it you know it's very little about being sort of the portfolio shot so. right exactly and that, that that connects exactly to where i wanted to take this conversation because i was really interested in how this book and this process relates intersects with overlaps the work with your studio. And so since um, you're a co-founder and, and partner at MGMT since 2001, I think, right? So almost 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that right? Um, 
how how did this you know did you see this as kind of a separate project how does this kind of relate to to the more what i'm going to call traditional design work which i'm putting traditional in quotes but you know the kind of studio practice how did this connect to that well i mean one huge uh you know piece of credit can go to sarah gephardt my partner (laughs) who was supportive throughout this whole thing because you know, I was sort of running off, taking a couple days here and there to go to different libraries. And she was just like super supportive. And um, so in that way, I think having that um, flexibility was hugely helpful and sort of figure out how to incorporate. And, you know, as the studio was formed, it has always been, um, you know, founded on a principle of sort of creative collaboration and flexibility. We started it Mm -hmm. when we were all like working like crazy for other people. And we're like, you know, this is not sustainable. We need to do it for ourselves. And if we're going to do it by our, for ourselves, we might as well take, you know, the flexibility where we can. So, um, you know, we took time off to have our kids and this too sort of fell within that sort of time off to do research. So I think it was a natural extension that we always had talked about, but I was sort of um, actively using. And, you know, Sarah, too, has taken time off to do research, et cetera, too. So because you have to kind of, I don't know, feed your soul in a way that's not always about client-based projects. And if you don't, for us, I think it was always that promise of getting to it, but you never really get to it. So I think, uh, you know, more considered like time off per se, um, you know, you can call it a sabbatical or whatever, but um, just to say that making time for it and really honoring it, plus it's so fun to do. So it was really easy yeah. to just be like, yeah. no, it's really a little bit of time between meetings. The afternoon looks pretty free. I'm going to run to the library. And, you know, the other great benefit I had for this whole process was being able to um, you know, work at the New York Public Library and finding out that they had a fellowship program where if you're working with their collection, you can get um, study room space. So mm-hmm. you know, back in undergrads, you kind of took it for granted that you could have a shelf and whatever. But, you know, having that yeah. within that building, too, was amazing. And then if you have a book contract, you get into, put into a different room that's more like a, a cubby style um, versus mm. the study hall. Um, but that just sort of, I don't know, lent this amazing air of legitimacy to the whole endeavor. Too. <laughs> I'm going to go research. And it's just, it was very cool all around. And I think the librarians at every place I went were just so, uh, I mean, obviously helpful, but like, it's just kind of amazing. And I still get amazed. I can just sort of talk about a general topic and they'll be like, well, did you look at this box? Or, you know, I found mm. so many things that, um, you know, they may not even have known that they had. And it was just amazing relationship and, um, you know, non-transactional, super helpful right. results and amazing things to look at. I mean, you can't really find that anywhere else. So it was easy yeah. to sort of work in the time to accommodate that process. Yeah, that's amazing. Did, you know, I'm, I mentioned earlier that the studio is very research focused, that research is a big part of your process generally. Um, I remember seeing you and Sarah speak at the typographics conference a couple years ago, mm-hmm. talking about the kind of glyphs that you made around, um, you know, gendered pronouns. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a whole section on your website called digressions, which are these kind of visual research experiment mm-hmm. projects. Um, does that, did that work kind of have an influence on your research process for the book and then vice versa did going deep and wide on the book has, have, has you seen that change, you know, kind of coming back to the studio and, and working, has that changed your process at all there? Um, I don't 
don't know. Well, first of all, making room for something like collaborative digressions was something we really wanted to do. So, you know, while it looks very tidy now on the website and having done one, we had another one in process before things went upside down. Um, you know, again, I can't underscore how hard it is to incorporate that extra bit. You know, you have to really mindfully uh, yeah. make sure people are making time for it and sort of keep it on track. So I think there will always be room for that. And that's the kind of practice we wanted to build is to have, you know, time that you can go deep into a topic uh, without necessarily the stress of it being sort of like critic related or school related per se. Right, right. Um, So there's always that bandwidth for that, um, you know, in that effort. So in a way, yes, ballots fell within that um, sort of digressive effort. Um, But, you know, when it became something that was an actual endeavor, being able to sort of carve out space without ramifications. And again, I can't credit Sarah enough for helping shoulder a lot of the load um, that the studio work was, um, you know, forcing on her. So (laughs) fairly well, but um, I think within that framework, you know, the hope is that we can have room and uh, space for more projects like this. Do you see that? And I, I hope this question doesn't sound reductive or like I'm that I'm like cheapening, uh, you know, or even commercializing that research. But how do you find that influencing the client work or or does it or do you see those purely as, um, you know, I don't see them for yourself? So, well, they are for they're, they're independent. Um, right. You, know, you find that you're in this business long enough, you know, a lot of people in different places. So you know, I called, uh, you know, was having conversations with different curators in Philadelphia about that and different friends, you know, mm-hmm. New Yorker tie in. So in a way, it's it's very gratifying to be able to speak to people um, both professionally and personally and then add in this side project. And then who knows what can happen. So I think we're very lucky to have um, sort of fostered this really nice supportive network um, of folks who can help in different ways. I mean, I'm always, I, I'm asking that question somewhat selfishly and, and thinking about my own, the evolution of my own practice. And I remember, mm-hmm. you know, 10, you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, eight, 10 years ago, I guess probably more like, you know, I would, I was working a, a very kind of traditional graphic design job going into the, to the office. And then I would come home and work on these other things that were a little more research-based or more writing-based or, um, that was like that personal work that you were talking about of kind of how MGMT started. And I was always frustrated at the time that those felt like two different activities. Yeah. And I was really interested in how do I make these one thing? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have thoughts on that? How, or do you see them as two separate things? Nah. Or do you care, or do you even care? <laughs> well, that's another question. I mean, it, it, when we... When we speak to designers who work for us, who have like really interesting independent projects, we do say like, if things, if you've done all your work and all the client stuff and, you know, we trust you to be manage your own time, certainly like bring those things into the office. You can work here and not feel self-conscious about it and not have it be an environment where they have to kind of like hide or like clock out. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that way, I think we've always tried to foster this more sort of collaborative spirit and like sort of, you know, creative generation can happen if you're on the clock or not. Um, so in that way, trying to sort of dissolve that, um, those sort of, uh, that barrier or that right. sort of re- um, channel of the personal and the professional. 
Um, then the other part is like, okay, how do you monetize something that's like personally really fulfilling that has kind of like, you know, useful value. So I'll let you know <laughs> when I come up with the answer to that one, because all I can do is come up with like still more of these research projects that basically like aren't making any money, God bless um, publishers, but you know, they need to do more research on grants and that kind of stuff too, because um, yeah, I haven't figured out that, that missing link of how to um, keep personal work more um, financially um, viable. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that, that wasn't exactly what I was, you know, I wasn't trying to ask you, to, you know, how, how to do that. But I, I do think that that's, you know, I, I interviewed um, Rainier de Graaf, uh, who's a partner at OMA. Mm-hmm. And he, for a while, ran AMO, which is their research arm. And basically, he said, you know, what this is, is this is a way that we can you know, monetize our process or sell our process, you know, without the, um, you know, without the promise of a building coming out of it. It's just like, we'll work with you to kind of figure out and ask these questions. And then maybe something happens and maybe something doesn't. And while I admire that from a kind of business perspective, and also just from a, hey, you get to kind of research and think about things that you're interested in, and people pay you for it. um, It also feels like, you know, maybe this is just like, the kind of like punk rock selling out in me feels kind of, you know, cheapening it in some way. And I don't get that with the projects that you are working on, you know, like, like the gendered pronoun glyph, for example, they seem so just, um, here's something that we're excited about. And we just want to share with you. I mean, that actually it happened from a client based project where we were proposing a, a typeface that was generated by the community. And that the offshoot of, mm, mm, right. you know, oh, what happens if, you know, it was for a women's building? What happens if type So it led to really interesting questions that we were speculating on. So, yeah, the origin was on a client-based project, but the client wasn't really funding that endeavor. Totally <laughs> right. But, um, I mean, I, I, I applaud anyone who can help uh, incorporate any kind of research process as part of their design fee, which, you know, I'm not saying we do it to sort of fluff the fee at all but we do it just by nature because we want to learn more about right. the project before we um, embark on it but um yeah i mean in terms of reinforcing that aspect of um you know how research can be more fully supported and incorporated into any project clearly that's always something we try to do but you know sometimes it doesn't always fit and like you know for us it was trying to balance that financial picture of like maybe you have you know, well-funded projects that can help support time off that's not billable right. um, for doing research right. like this. So in that way, yes, there is that relationship, even though it's, um, you know, disconnected in other ways. Right, right. Um, I mean, that kind of leads into my next question. What's what's next for you? Do you think you have another book in you? Are there other research projects? Is there more to this book? Uh, what are you thinking about now? <sighs> well, now is a... Interesting time to ask that kind of thing. <laughs> I know. I think we're all trying to figure out what's going to happen now, now versus next week versus right. fall. So, um, many ways, not the pandemic, there's the election, everything. So, um, I mean, I feel so grateful to have a working partner um, in Sarah in terms of just the support and sort of copacetic attitude of everything. Um, mm-hmm. Really, yeah, I have other book ideas in me for sure. Um, you know, and also, based on discussions and meetings with different librarians and seeing different collections, there's so much I would love for more people to see. Uh, so however that can work, is it the, uh, the collection institutions sort of 
you know, providing some funding to photograph all of it or how it all, you know, there's many different mediums to get those kind of projects out there. Um, But yeah, I mean, maybe another career would be sort of like library collections advocate person where show people's stuff. It's just uh, because, I mean, clearly they're there and there's a lot of great relationships already, like say RISD and the Brown libraries. Um, But, you know, just sort of the encouragement of like, you don't really have to know what you're looking for. You could just show up at the map collection at the New York Public Library and say, I want to find a map on you know, cholera distribution. And all of a sudden there is just like a ton of stuff that will be on this table that you just go crazy for. And that's the kind of thing that I would hope to share with anybody else who, you know, has sort of a little bit of an itch to research, but still feeling like it's not clear in terms of what they're looking for. Um, So I don't have fully formed book proposals in my head, but if given the opportunity, I would definitely be happy to do more of that. Well, (laughs) practice. I still like obviously working and, um, uh, those kind of client relationships. So at this point in time, for sure, it's about like supporting each other, relying on yeah. you know, networks and relationships that, with people you know, because, you know, it, it's this, it's hard for everybody right now. And um, so I'm just grateful for what we have and have built. Yeah, I I love the um the the love for libraries and librarians. My mom is a librarian, and that is not something, um, not something I ever thought that I would do or be interested in. But I actually think if I did my career over, I would seriously consider it because like what what I love doing is just pointing people to things that they're looking for and kind of collecting things. I mean, it's just so gratifying and like super smart about everything. So. Um, I think they're the best people. I was getting weight and like was I was going to do like a library convention in October. You know, I was just getting way into uh, that group. <laughs> yeah, so, and I think it was a, a fun relationship because they're like, "Oh, you're you're only looking at the sort of visual artifact." And I'm like, "Yes, yes," but I still care about the content. And so it was like it was really fun, and I hope to pursue that further. So, did you read the the library by Susan Orlean? I have not yet. I have it, but I haven't read it yet. I liked it a lot. That is a perfect segue into my final question, which is the question that I use to end all of these. Um, speaking of libraries and books, what are you reading right now? Oh, okay. I am reading um, Eric Foner's uh, Short History Reconstruction. I am re- well, you know, I could probably email you this longer list because my side table is nuts. It's like goes from like hardcore, like history of debt and economics to um a book called Cultures of Voting to Colin Dexter in the Inspector Morris mystery series. So <laughs> it depends on my mood. Oh, I can also super recommend um, Word by Word. It's a Merriam-Webster editor writing about um, being oh, a lithographer. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, a really fun read. She's a great writer. So again, uh, The Impeachers is another good one by Linda Wineapple. Um, it's about the trial of Andrew Johnson. So it goes from like hardcore American history to like wordplay to uh, detective mysteries set in in different countries. I love it. I love it. That's exactly my side table's the same way. Um, yeah. There's no judgment. I am. I love it. <laughs> um, this was so fun. Um, I loved the book. Um, I, I think okay. it's so interesting, and it was so nice to t- to talk to you about it. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. This episode was recorded on August 24th, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening and don't forget to vote.